Hello and welcome to Square Hole, the podcast that explores neurodiversity, employment and the creative industries. I'm your host, Sazie Cliviture. This week, we're talking to Abe Rogers, founder and creative director of Abe Rogers Design. Our producers, Lorna Allen and Janook Sarkar, caught up with Abe while he was in the midst of installing the companion exhibition to Wes Anderson's film, The French Dispatch. Abe shared his own thoughts on classifying neurodiversity as a learning difference rather than as a disability and how his own neurodiversity informs his incredible work. Hi, I'm Abe Rogers. Um, I founded a company called Abe Rogers Design back in 2004. Before that, I was a carpenter and had a little collective with Claire Fisher called Ahead Ahead. And before that, I used to kind of sail around and stuff. Our design is really looks at, well, at the moment we're really interested in how space and objects can affect you. So we do a lot of work towards uh, looking at kind of hospitals, at, um, but also at accommodation. And we kind of develop these ideas called the third carer. So it's really about how the, 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 the building, the interior can comfort you or can disturb you or can, can change the way that you react. So how can we make a hospital feel more welcoming, for example? Um, we have a range of clients, museums, restaurants, hotels and hospitals. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll leave it there. How long was the transition between those different iterations of the agencies and your sort of freelancey type roles that led into that? How how long would you say that you spent in each of those different iterations of agencies and freelance work? I have a lecture called Twenty Five Objects in Twenty Five Years, which is often more than twenty five, and it really starts with kind of design experiments um, and making in like early 90s, like 92 and stuff like that. Um, I left school at 15 with really no qualifications. I kind of enjoyed school, but school didn't enjoy me. My art teacher said to me that I was an imperfect perfectionist. And my ceramics (laughs) teacher said that Abe um, tries hard, but has no ability to design, which are kind of words that I've taken with me. And my headmaster yeah. wrote me a letter be- before asking me to leave, saying that I was a champion of causes and um, left-wing near anarchist. Um, and I'd caused... My- anyway, it went on saying how much trouble I'd caused. So I suppose... And yeah, so they, I, I, I kind of didn't fit into to systems in, in that, that way. Yeah, that's brilliant. But I have a very good memory of my past, which I think is a dyslexic asset, is, is to have this... be able to dig back into our, our memories. Of- in- that's interesting. And actually, it leads on to my next question really well, because um, I'd like you to tell us your connection and experience of neurodiversity. Like, Tell us a little bit more about that. You've already hinted at it. Well, exactly. So I think neurodiversity made me very bad at passing exams at school, but it made me very good at um, seeing things with clarity. And I think we have a very kind of three-dimensional, multi-sensual minds. So I think um, we've been shortlisted for Wolfson um, Prize on designing the hospital of the future. So I'm writing 
Well, when I say I write, I call up my brilliant writer and I talk and she makes it into words. But then she sent me this very unedited pile of notes, like 5,000 words, and I tried to edit them. And I really had a little panic attack. And I just was having the sensation of being, of this, a seas of words coming over me and trying to fight them and try, I'm gesticulating with my arms, which you can't see because we have no, no camera. But really this, you know, and I don't panic, I'm crazily confident generally. And so it was this yeah. real, this real, and it was something, something I hadn't felt for long, a, a long time, this fear of these words. When I can keep away from those, I can deal with words, but in, in neat piles. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'd sat in my head really ordering very clearly all this structure, but as soon as I came to affect it, it all went, all the boundaries exploded. The, in the end, the writer, when I sent it to her, she said I had done a quite a constructive job and it was not the mess that I thought it was. But at a certain point, I didn't look at them because they were come to. And the next day, I kid, kid you not, I thought I'd lost it all. And I thought, actually, it's really good that I've lost it because it was so painful and it was such an awful experience that maybe it's better just to get it out of the way. I've learned lots from it and I can just start fresh. But she said it was really good. And now, I have, then she re-edited the text and now it's in a, in a way that's not frightening me. So that is not really answering your question. No, but I really connect with those feelings entirely. So it was really nice to hear. So, but we um, can, but we can, meet, we can move through different mediums. So I can, in my head, I can put food yeah. together, and I can imagine how they're going to contaminate each other, and the oven, and the cooking, and the smell that will come out of it. I can play with colours in my head. I'm closing my eyes now, but you can't see because it's a podcast. But I'm closing. You know, I can put <laughs> colours in my head and forms, and I can really happily move things around and visualise it, and and, and 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 play with it. I'm never bored. One continuously, I bicycle along designing or th I quite like numbers sometimes or thinking about numbers and designing through you know these different translating I think there's a lot of translating that goes on in, in our head our process is so yeah. quick that it's quite boring with, with linear people because they don't keep up with us they might be able to spell but they're really quite slow and sometimes we do neurodiverse parties and they're all very funny because everyone talks really fast I find and they all think <laughs> in a different in a different way the interesting thing about neurodiversity is that we're such a spectrum, aren't we? Where there's so many different, yeah. we have different little issues. And as I say, maths I can really do in my head. But this thing with the letters, they just really, they make no sense to me how they go together. Um, it takes me half an hour to write a kind of a, a 10 word text, but I can speak 5,000 yeah. words a minute, so it seems silly to bother. So then I send people yeah. little recorded messages and they get irritated by that. So I think, well, you do it in your way and I'll do it in my way. Thank you. Exactly. God, I couldn't agree more. And again, yeah, me and Lorna are just nodding all the time because we both feel the same thing. Um, I sometimes think us dyslexic are like, but like super people. We have this little, these strange hyper abilities and we have these very minus abilities, plus abilities and minus abilities. So it's this balance between the different abilities. Do you think that, I know that this is going to be addressed more specifically later on in the question, so I don't want to go into this too much, but I think in response to what you've just said, like, do you think that creative industries or like places like art schools, like you mentioned with your daughter's uh, story, do you think that they offer more platforms for translating or communicating than other industries do? And that's why... Um, you know, neurodiverse people are attracted to those areas of working um, because I feel like it can be a myth. Like, I'm, I sort of, I don't know, I'm bringing my personal thing into it now, but I feel like sometimes it makes me a bit like, no, you know, it's not as simple as that when people say, oh, you know, loads of creative people are in the, uh, in the industry are dyslexic because that's 
you know, that's the only place that they fit into. Well, a lot of people who are neurodiverse are also in prison, which I think is the really, which is the really worrying thing. And, the, right. you know, we have a different way of processing, so we can only respond when we are um, in, in a, a more, in a system that we can reorientate. And so, yeah. it'd be yeah. so art has softer edges. But I think, you know, through the amazing dyslexic books, etc. you know, I've met a fantastic surgeon who's amazing. I'm working with an incredible neuroscientist called Laura Benjamin, who I got to be on the, um, I got to be in the, in the amazing dyslexic inside out project. And she said to me, hey, it's like coming out. I, I've never admitted in my industry, it's really frowned upon to be not be able to spell. It's really not seen as a, as a plus. I've always hidden it. And now through the encouragement of the amazing dyslexia, I feel like I've come out. I've come out and said, hey, I am got a super brain. I am a leading researcher. I've won these extraordinary awards and I'm dyslexic. And she, and you, the yes. way she, when I talk to her, the clarity that she explains medicine to me is, is not like another doctor. It is in this extraordinary way. And I think that's part of her neurodiverse because she sees things with this clarity that comes with our, our different uh, process. Yeah, that's really interesting. But um, actually, you've linked into the next question nicely, which is about a presentation you gave where you described neurodiversity as a learning difference rather than a learning difficulty. Um, I'd kind of like you to explain your choice in language over those differences. And with this in mind, could you tell us a bit about how you found your creative process and did you have any issues embracing the way that you worked? Because it all sounds like you just, you know, it's, it's just your way. But I'd like to know if there was any struggle in accepting that or... I got approached by Savile, the estate agent, to be a spokesman about neurodiversity for their kind of inclusion panel. And they kept right. saying their inclusion panel comes down to disability. And I kept saying, you cannot put it into disability. We are hyperability. It is really the wrong way around of, of, of conceiving it. The problem is that the world has created this concept of the normal. And the normal is not, I don't think, necessarily normal. It, is, it affects a certain type of people who letters are very easy for them and they can speak and they can read very well and they comprehend in this way. But they're really linear and they can't close their eyes and imagine how things smell and come together and they can't do all these other hyperabilities. So I think for us, I learned a lot. I have, I could learn, and I'm sure likewise, with the, you know, we learn, but we learn from different ways. I learn from experience. I understand physics because I make things and I notice that the wood floats and you remove the air and the plastic sinks and, you know, we, we create... You know, yeah. I made yeah. my degree piece at the Royal College of Art was called a jellyfish on the leash, which is a giant plastic vacuum formed that lived as a as a as a, as a kind of chandelier in the in the ceiling, and you pulled it down and it became a table, and you put it into masses of tension, and it became rigid, and tons of tension. It was about releasing all the the un, the un using all the unstored energy in the structure, but of course a thing slipped, and suddenly all that energy became momentum and the table crashed into the concrete and broke into like 1,022 pieces at like six in the morning before my degree show. And I'd spent months building this, this thing. So there became the sense oh, wow. that, that of, of self-destruction of certain projects. But it was because we really pushed the boundaries. And then we'd have to explain why it had broken and why I should still get a degree. Because I went from being kind of the top student to suddenly being very questionable because all I had was a bag of broken plastic bits. But they'd seen the whole process. So they really didn't need to question. 
So yeah. I'm trying to think what your yeah. question was again. Yeah, so it was like two parts of a question, really. So there was one about like the the language that you choose to describe neurodiversity. So learning difference and learning difficulty. We should be teaching people in a different way. We should be teaching people for what their, where their assets are. We should be unlocking, unlocking their skills and yeah. looking at a person like a, like a doctor. Some are tall, some are short, some are diverse, some are linear. Yeah. And then you have spoken through really nice few examples of like your creative process. But d- yeah, did you have any issues in embracing that with the way that you work at any point like spanning your career today at school it was a disaster but I think as I learned to make things and discovered that that I could I was really quite good at talking and I could negotiate Mm -hmm. things through talking um the my my process built but it got you know I was was always based on getting friends or, or partners or girlfriends to write for me so for me, my process started to work when the studio got a little bit bigger and I could start to employ people. So I could employ people to help me translate my ideas. And I could employ people, or I could partner with people, should I say, sorry, to collaborate with people, to write with me and to design with me. And they could fill in my, my weaknesses and I could fill in their weaknesses. So Shona was very nervous about talking, but she was a brilliant thinker and, and designer. And so we had, would have these different personalities. I now work with a really brilliant architect called Ernesto Bartolini who's like my best friend, and he is, he's, you know, Lini is not fair, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's really clever, and he has a huge head, and, he, and he, he presents to me all the time with these beautiful spreadsheets, and I never can look at them, and I have to do my numbers in my own little way, and he really puts up with that, and I, and I love his process, and he takes my kind of cranking ideas, and he makes sense of them, and he comes to me with his, with his quite sensible ideas, and I desense them, so we, we pull and we push, and out of it, I don't want to get the wrong impression. He's he's you know, he's a brilliant designer. It's not that, but he has he has to rationalise everything, and I have to de-rationalise mm. it in a way. I I'm interested yeah. in the tiny detail, and he he says about hey, if we're designing this, how are you going to get to the site? And I really don't care how you're going to get to the site, but when you get to the site, I know the feeling that, but it's going to be red, and it's going to smell of tulip oil, and it's going to have soft textures. He's fine, but how are we going to get the people there? And how are we gonna? How how are they gonna get through there? And what are we gonna do about fire? Because fire's really not gonna like uh, the fact that you've got no doors or whatever, like this. Or you've got no walls. I'm always I hate walls. Try to remove all the walls. I love this. Well, so what I'm hearing is like with some of the issues that you've experienced, like school being a disaster. Do you think the issues there were that it was a particular kind of construct and that? There was no flexibility in how you explained your ideas. But then when you found your perfect platform being, I just need to speak them, that was when you could then evolve your creative process and, like like you say, have collaborators to help write things out or make sense of in their own processes to be able to work together, fill in the gaps. Um, Am I interpreting Yeah, that I think, so. I mean, in some of what we're saying, in a way, is that, well, but part of the problem is that we have to translate ourselves because we have to fit into the process yeah. of everyone else. Maybe we need to see more negotiation in the other direction because I think part of the reason I have to build all this construct is I can't send to people my really naive drawings and say, build that. But yeah, I think we, we, we need to have these, these translators because we work in a, in, in a different way. But through working in a different way, we, we give a lot back. We, you know, we believe in the heart, we believe in the instinct. Um, yeah. And we can often skip 
you don't have to go through B and C, partly because we don't know where B and C are often. They can be hiding under the cupboard or something. <laughs> so we can go. But that means that we can get quicker to, to yeah. Z. Yeah. Um, yeah. Along, 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 along the way. Yeah. So um, I guess, again, I think you've already sort of mentioned a few things, but I think it's important to sort of maybe break them down a bit because, yeah, I was just wondering in your career, um, maybe from working, your experience of working with other creatives, maybe their processes differ from your own and you've mentioned a couple of things already. But um, within that, what methods have you developed to make those working relationships effective and productive. So yeah, I, I know the spreadsheet example is really great. You've you, you, yeah, but are there any others? Everyone has their own process, and every process is different, mm. and every everyone should be educated a different way. You know, we it's a it's, it's this it's this it's this measure. So yeah, there's I mean there's I really I love collaborating, and I and a lot of the people that I meet along the way I really get on with. And we all have very different processes. Um, and whether it's Sarah Finelli, the illustrator who I really enjoy working with. Um, oh, wow. You work with Sarah Finelli. Brilliant. Yeah. And she's not work. neurodiverse. Well, she is neurodiverse probably in some way. She's super literate. Um, but she has a very different process. And we send each other things and they, and, and they you know, it's a form of exquisite corpse. And they kind of, and an, an idea develops. Or I work with a fashion designer called Blue Farrar who is definitely neurodiverse. And we have these crazy conversations, but we can really understand each other. And it becomes this very fast-moving conversation with like, which ideas develop and, and, and bubble up. Um, or Marina Willow, Pentagram, um, where we kind of really share thoughts and conversations and, and, um, and, and, and processes. And it, we can quickly, very quickly build a, a story of which to then launch a design from. And it's those kind of, it's the confidence that you have in knowing people's work and in their ability that you can create these conversations. For me, at the moment, what's really been interesting is working with all these neuro, uh, neuroscientists or neuro, um, neurologists and trying to, to look at the world, look at the hospital from their perspective and then try to look mm -hmm. at it from the designer's perspective and see how we can, we can help each other and that, that shared mind. And I think, yeah. you know, I find their minds fascinating, but I think they also find my mind quite interesting because it's so, it's so different. So we create this, I mean, that's arrogant to say, but I just I assume so because they keep turning up to these conversations, otherwise they'll get bored and they're quite busy yeah. people and go off and do something else. Nice. But because we're, we're, we're trying funny. to really challenge the norm and we're trying to reimagine the hospital and we listen to their, to their woes and concerns and we respond to those woes and concerns with a design solution. So there's no comradeship left in the hospital. So how can we bring the, all the hospital workers together? We can put a rooftop bar on top of their building. Um, you know, we really worry about the patients. Can't, they can't get out, you know, they, they need to go outside, but we can't get them downstairs to the hospital. So we give them a little, a, a little we put, give them a pocket park outside the ward. Um, the patients need to have views. Ah, so we can put, we grow trees outside their ward so they look out. So doing things which seem to us really simple and really obvious, but to the, to the minds which are more wired around the norm, they seem quite unacceptable. So for me, the moves we've made, I don't think are that radical, but when we show them to people, they're really like, oh, how did you come up with that? How did you, you know? So we just did it because it solves the problem. So it comes back to the kind of problem solving, but it's a different problem solving that the non-dyslexics do. 
Um, and just, I'm sure many dyslexics also solve problems in different, in different ways. Is that answering at yeah. all? Yeah, definitely. I really resonate with that idea of kind of, you know, the things that you often suggest are not actually that radical or they're very small, simple strategies, but they make a massive impact and they're really effective and productive. If only people listen to us more. <laughs> but the simple solutions are the good solutions. They're doable. I, I, yeah, I, you know, yeah, this exactly. making things crazily complicated. Yeah. You know, I think we don't need it. Why we don't need the spreadsheet? Just get to the point. Let's deal with the shit. Let's make it happen. Let's do it. Let's not make things really difficult. We can fly to the moon. Surely we can build a better hospital. I'm all for that. Yeah. No, it's really helpful. Thanks, Abe. Lorna, I think you have the next set of questions. Yeah. Um, I, I really love you talking about the neuroscientists coming out. Like, yes. <laughs> like, uh, because Abe, uh, both Janik and I were actually diagnosed with dyslexic when we were like a bit later. Um, I don't know, I was 36 and uh, yeah, and at wow, university. That's really, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that is a lot later. Yeah, and um, we, we've actually, we've talked a little bit between us about like how that felt and like this kind of like having your diagnosis kind of just dumped on you and then that's it. There's no, there's nothing else comes after that. No, there's no, no like, no, or, or any way of just like, like, education or dealing with it or just you're just kind of told that and I think it's, it's great to talk to you about process because it's something that I struggle with understanding that what process what, what it is for me because I've, I'm still still trying to get my head around the fact that I I have not the right I don't do the process like like I was taught to do it or in a way but so can I say that from what I've read that's very it's quite it's quite uh, it's not rare in, in women women are much better at creating a counter to the dyslexia, so as to pretend not to be dyslexic without, I mean, subconsciously this is. I know I've read a few articles about con concealing, I suppose, is what I'm talking about. Do you think that's... Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. also the same for autistic women. It's yeah. they, they, because like one of the traits in men is like showing that their empathy levels are different, whereas women are naturally more empathetic, so they don't detect it as much. Yeah, it's really very interesting that... Um, I, I think the question I was going to ask was around uh, more about working with different creative processes, but you kind of like answered that a little bit about you're working with um, your the other designer about creative tension and how that can be really like important, actually, um, in respect of like, you know, like your process is different to your designer's process and that that, that sort of tension can also like bring really amazing work out of that. When um, I used to work with Shona Kitchen, there'd be a lot of tension and we had these very different responses but through that tension I think we produced some of our best work also things were, 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 were smaller and there'd be real kind of quite terrible fights and she, she wouldn't talk to me for days um, it's because she knew that was my Achilles heel I can't if someone doesn't call me back I, get, I find it really complicated I need, I need continuous conversations um, so but when me and Shona split up or parted with Amicabee and we're still really good friends she said that, um, she said, Abe, you take the rainbow, I'm going to take black and white, and we will fight over red. And so that was kind of represented these different personalities. She was always about this very, this black and this white, and, this, and I always wanted all the, the rainbow and the pretty edges and the, or the soft edges. Um, I don't like hard edge, I don't like corners, I like to rub out corners, I like to create radiuses. I find, I think someone once told me that, Hindu, that the Hindus believe that ghosts get stuck in corners, but I think, you know, also dust gets stuck in corners. I just don't like corners, <laughs> things get stuck in corners. So I think if we can swoop beyond corners, we can make a much softer, softer world. The, the body has no corners. I feel like that about the, the, the middle of a book. 
I feel like when I'm designing a book, it just like drives me nuts that like I have to stop there or something. I want the things to go over the both. It's like, that's like another space I want to create in that space. Yeah, it like exactly. sort of like, I, I feel really like crazy about it. I'm like, oh, how, what can I, how can I do that? Um, I, so I guess I was going to ask a bit more about like, so your approach to each project, um, about your approach to each project. And so with, do you think your process differs, differs from project to project? Or do you always feel that you start at a sort of similar point and then proceed into your way of working? No, it, it, I mean, it, it varies. I see things very clearly, but sometimes what I see at the beginning is not what I see at the end. Sometimes I have an idea and I, I discover, often I discover it's a, the idea is not necessarily really working as clearly as I thought it was. And sometimes I discover it mid-conversation when I'm really pushing it. And I suddenly realise, you know what, you're right, it's not going anywhere. Let's get rid of that. I think it's a really important thing to know when to stop and to give up on something. And to say, when we were doing Little Chef, we made this, we, we had like a, we had three months to deliver the whole project and a very small budget and a TV crew following us. A Little Chef, Big Chef with Heston Blumenthal. And we made this rule that soon as the, if the client said no or didn't like it, rather than do what we would do historically, which is really persuade them, we would go, fine, new idea. Um, just so we could move things through. You know, we can, I remember saying to a curator, I don't mind what the decision is, I just want a decision. Without decision, we can't design. And that's why I find can be a little bit frustrating. Um, I was going to uh, also ask about the spaces that you design. They're really about evoking feeling. And um, so do you start with planning how you want someone to feel in the space rather than um, how they will see or how they function in it? Yeah, I think we do. It happens very far. It happens quite simultaneously, but absolutely. It's how you want the person to feel in the, in the space. At the moment downstairs, we're designing this exhibition for um, Lux, for this, all this super high tech stuff. But I think when we're designing exhibitions now, I have committed over my life, I don't know, 1,700 crates of MDF to skips, I fear. And this, I, this is something I stay awake at night, having this feeling of the skips over flooding. So now when we design exhibitions, I try to really minimise the use of materials. And the materials I use, I try to be able to reuse them. So we have all these boxes containing videos and that to contain the sound but what we've done is we've removed all the outer skin of the boxes so you have exposed stud work and then you have all the installation which is silver so you start seeing the ins you see the legibility of the structure and the insulation so we're, we're removing the we're making it really obvious how it's built but then when we don't have to have sound division we're using curtains because of curtains there's much less massive material they're really easy to reuse and and to go on to, to somewhere else and even with the studs we've done everything with no glue screwed together so you can dismantle them rebuild them in in, in in different ways and out of that so the starting point of that process was how to avoid another 22 pallets of, of mdf going to, to, to waste but this, out of that is born a really interesting aesthetic. We just did an exhibition in, um, for the science gallery about mental health. The tragedy is that no one has seen this exhibition because it's continuously in lockdown. Um, and for me, that started off with a curtain because I thought, well, how are we going to create this exhibition? I don't want to use any hard surfaces. Also, mental health is soft. We don't want to, you know, a curtain is a really nice metaphor to wrap you up. So I always saw it in my little funny head as this, this endless curtain. We then wrote to, and then we wanted to make the curtain out of waste, is why um, 
why use new material when you can use offcuts and like quilt it together? So we wrote to Quadrat and we got them. They donated us all their um their, all their old rolls, the ends of the rolls and the, the X stock. Mm. And then I wanted mm. to get mental health kids in mental health institutes to, to stitch it together because it's quite therapeutic the stitching. And then I think the science guy said, okay, enough. We can't do that. It's just unpractical. We're not going to have time to do it, and it's going to get too complicated. We, it might not get delivered. Mm. So then I that part of the story got snipped off. And now it exists as this very beautiful piece of fabric made up of these different colours and these different pieces. Oh, sounds amazing. So lovely. <gasps> oh, but we really believe in designing from the inside to the outside. So you need to start looking at the, at what the, the interior and then you wrap the building around the interior. And we are very fed up with these buildings, which are about making these giant, normally phallic statements on the outside and completely ignoring the interior. It's, I don't, have you ever been to the, the V&A in Dundee, Abe? I really, I've quite liked, I quite like Kentakuma. <laughs> well, that, I mean, I think that's been the most, because dis- I, when I went in, that was the most disappointing thing that I felt like that space is like, it's, it's, it was made for the outside and inside it's like, re- the, the space is so badly utilised, it's so disappointing. It's, mm. yeah, that's just making me think about like, I guess. Now, I've heard that yeah, from lots of, I was from two people guess, who are quite brilliant, one being my dad and one being um, an old girlfriend of mine, Caroline Rue, both really loved it. And they're really good architecture. Oh, so I, and I've always wanted to go and see it to, to understand that. But I'm sure you're right. I'm not, I'm not uh, disagreeing with you about Kentucky. I just I love his work as well. No, no, it is beautiful. I just feel like what they've done is really annoying because they put this like tiny little cafe and then like they just haven't used the space. They've got this little cafe at the back and it's like that, is, that shouldn't go there. And then there's this incredible space inside, but it's like there's nothing filling it. It's just empty. Like it's sort of like calling for, I don't know, they've got like a little couple of bookshelves. It's just like, wait, somebody hasn't thought about this bit very well. I was going to say, do you think that's because they've they've just not consulted or watched how people use and interact in that space. Because I thought what Abe was saying earlier was really interesting. Like, yeah, you, you watch the space, you look at what colours will interact or textures or the, or the scale of it and then make decisions on that. But also perhaps the people using it is, you know, really important. Um, I was going to quickly ask, um, I guess I experienced from having dyslexia is kind of like prone to opening up lots of like um, ideas and, and pathways. Is that something you've experienced? And then do you know when to stop adding to ideas or getting ideas bigger and bigger, bigger? Do you know when the good point to stop adding and start crafting and homing in? Well, I'm not necessarily the best at that. I get, but my team says enough. Stop doing it. I think with the, with the hospital project, I just keep, I call, I've got this new idea, and we need to, we've got to have, uh, and Philippa goes, hey, we, we need to, the part of the, the feedback from the judges is to focus in, and you've got to stop expanding. And I think our design also comes down to quite simple, but the complex, you're absolutely right, I open up many pathways along the way. But then you just need to, to stop at some point and then move into, to uh, move forward. The important thing is the decision. It's not what the decision is. It's the decision and the conviction to the decision. And once you have, I'm sure with you and your designs, once you have that, once you've chosen that direction and that process, then you're very good at, at sticking with that, with that and not allowing corruption and contamination. Though I love corruption and contamination. I think it's very good in the right place. Yeah, that is definitely something I absolutely struggle with. More and more and more. I remember my MA, they were like, stop, you have to stop. Go down, Lorna, go down. I was like, but I'm going so, yeah, it's like a big tree, isn't it? Just keep climbing, climbing, climbing. 
Um, do you think your do you think your process has kind of changed as your career's evolved? Yeah, I just it's grown my process. At the beginning, there were, you know, it was really it was there were simpler issues. It was trying to, I think now I listen much more than I probably used to, and I think the way the more we know, the more we don't know, isn't it? And so the more we realise we need to to, to listen, um, and I respond to these different. I'm very easily influenced by conversation and peoples that I surround myself. Thank you. Um, I guess that, that's almost all of our questions, I actually. So we I was just going to ask you if there's anything around this, because obviously we're talking about processes, or if there's anything you'd like to sort of add or or tell us if somebody was like, if somebody was listening in and they were struggling with their process or they or they didn't quite understand their, how their process was coming about or they find it frustrating. Is there, is there any sort of advice that you might want to sort of partake on them or, or any words of encouragement for anyone struggling with, with their creative process as a neurodivergent creative? I think that for us neurodiverse design, for me, design is a conversation. It's a continuous conversation between you, the collaborators, the client, the space, all these different conversations going on in, 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 our, in our head. And the key is to try to create a focal stream so we can get those, we can, we can progress that, that idea. Um, and to avoid the, the maelstrom of things flying at us, which is, I think, the, the anxiety of dyslexia and the, um, the positive energy of our, of our clarity. And we need to, to, to focus so we can push the maelstrom out the way and get this conversation very clear but we really must listen to people and we really must be open to ideas. Oh, thanks, Abe. Yeah, thank you so much. It's given a lot of positivity. Abe, is there any um, future projects or um, particular places where listeners who um, may be familiar or unfamiliar with your work, like what you'd like to signpost them towards? Because we really want you know, people listening in to know where you're going next or, yeah. To well, I, I think the big thing we're doing now is the Wilson's Award. Um, so watch out for new hospitals coming. Um, we're, working on, we're working in the NHS doing some breast cancer rooms for Charing Cross, neonatal um, in uh, St Thomas's. And then the two exhibitions here at 180 The Strand, one called Lux, which opens on Monday and one which is uh, about Wes Anderson's latest film, and then working away in Cove Park on uh, making beautiful residencies with, with the team there. Amazing. Thank you. Loads, basically. Loads. 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 <laughs> okay, awesome. Ib, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was, like, so enlightening and amazing. And really appreciate your time. Well, I think as dyslexics, we always have time and we never know when to stop. <laughs> Yeah, so true. You've been listening to Square Hole. On behalf of its creators, Lorna Allen and Januk Sarkar, we hope this episode has allowed you to consider some new pathways into your understanding of neurodiversity. We would really like to give a massive thank you to all of our interviewees for giving us their time and knowledge and talking to us about their experiences. We'd also like to extend our huge thanks to our funders at the RSA and to Zoe Law, who helped fund the production of the podcast. A huge thank you to Ade Bambala and to Carrie Morrison for their editing. A big thank you to Angus Wilson from Eames Music for arranging our music theme. Finally... 
thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this helps you in some way on your journey. It has certainly helped us.